You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. I'm all dressed up today. Not sure what you guys did. It's a church picnic. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, We're continuing our series today in the Gospel of Mark called Good News with Mark the Evangelist. And I'll say in just a minute why I'm dressed as I am. It'll become obvious enough. So we're going to start with a bit of scripture that uh, could be called Condemning the Scribes, the Widow's Offering, and the destruction of the temple. Um, this, by the way, is my uh, graduation robes. You know, have a PhD from the University of Sheffield, and this is what you look like when you go to graduation. Or if you teach at Hogwarts, uh, either one. <laughs> so uh, I have been asked before if, if, uh, I, I, if I was Harry Potter, and I said no, but I had him in class once. So yeah, we dress up sometimes with pomps and circumstance, and Mark will tell us about religious leaders, uh, people who like to write, people who like to speak, and he has a particular um, comment about them. This is in Mark chapter 12. It starts here. As he taught, he said, he hears Jesus. As Jesus taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses for the sake of the appearance they say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He writes, He sat down, again Jesus, he sat down opposite the treasury. The treasury would be where they would have collected money for the temple. And he watched the crowd putting in money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which were worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had, all she had to live on. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, What large stones, what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be torn down. It's an interesting comment. Like, what's got Jesus so upset? I mean, Jesus' disciples seemed to be all kind of Galileans, small town kids, you know? They, they lived in rural areas. 
And so now they've come with their rabbi to Jerusalem. And this is the first time we see this in Mark's gospel, right? They come, they come to the big city and they see this wonderful temple. Glorious temple. A building like they would not have been able to found anywhere else in the world at that time. You're familiar with Stonehenge? It's a circle of stones outside of Oxford. It's kind of popular, kind of maybe Celtic or something. Don't send me emails if that's not who the group was. But um, that group of stones, one of the things that's amazing about it is how big they are. And those stones are not indigenous to that area. So they were brought in from somewhere else. Impressive. The largest one, I think, is around 17 tons. So we can say the Brits knew math, right? But then you're also familiar with the pyramids of Giza, the three large pyramids in Egypt, you know, the two big ones and one slightly smaller, just offset. Also impressive, done thousands of years before Stonehenge. The largest stone in the pyramids of Giza is about 40 tons. That's a lot bigger than the 17 tons. So the Egyptians and the aliens beat the <laughs> Brits. Yeah. Don't, I don't know. I, I used to watch the History Channel. I don't know what happened to it. That ancient alien stuff will rot your brain. Just don't, don't, don't pay attention to that. The Temple Mount. So the temple had been built by Solomon, but it had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And then, you know, when Ezra and Nehemiah kind of rebuilt the city, eventually Zerubbabel would rebuild the temple. But it was small. There wasn't much to it. It wasn't the glory of Solomon. And that temple would be desecrated by a Greek, a Syrian king named Antiochus. Uh, it would start a war, and eventually at the end of that war, they'd rededicate it. And that's where the holiday of Hanukkah comes from, is the rededication of that temple. But eventually, along would come Herod the Great, and he was a massive builder. And he kind of restructured the whole thing. He built this huge platform, and then on the platform... I mean, the platform would be the, like the size of our building and our parking lot and the next parking lot put together. It's huge. And then on that, he built these new buildings. The cornerstones of those buildings, the two, the two largest stones in the northwest corner, are 600 tons each. Master, look at these stones. Look at this large building. How wonderful it is. And Jesus is like, you see this building? I'm tearing this place down. Okay, what got into Jesus? I want us to focus first on this little story in between the story of the scribes and the story of the temple. It's the story of this widow. And I want to look at that bit first. So I've often heard this story, right? A widow comes, she puts in two copper coins, it's everything she has, and she's like the ultimate example, right? She is how we should be. We should give all we have. Except no one does that, right? No one gives all they have. I mean, maybe an occasional Benedictine monk makes a vow of poverty and gives everything. But we don't do that. Not only do we not give everything we have, we wouldn't even advocate that that's the right Christian thing to do, right? There's none of us here that says we should completely empty our bank accounts, sell our property, and give everything we have to Oasis. No one's saying that. So is she what? She's kind of, some, some commentators want to say she's a type for Jesus. Jesus is going to give all that he has. 
And the woman now gives all she has, and it kind of leads us in the way, right? That's a nice reading. It's kind of soft. It's gentle. Makes, makes the widow into the hero. But I, I want to suggest something else is going on. In the passage before, when it's talking about the scribes and their robes and how they like to be greeted in the marketplace and how they like to get the good seats at, at you know, the church picnic. <laughs> it says that they devour widows' houses and they pray these long prayers. And then you get a story of a widow being allowed to give everything she has to the temple. And Jesus is like, I'm tearing this place down. What if the story of the widow is not an example for how we're supposed to behave? Like, we're not supposed to be like the widow. The widow has done nothing wrong, right? The widow is the victim here. She's the one who's, in a way, being taken advantage of because though she has nothing, whatever little bit she has to give, the temple's willing to take. And Jesus' very next comment is, I'm tearing this temple down. What if true religion, like Jesus' brother, James, said in his letter, is about taking care of orphans and widows? Jesus has already said, hey, bring that child to me. Such is the kingdom of God. It's when you're a servant to the least of these that you're going to be like me. Jesus comes and says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. The heart of the gospel is caring for those who are in need. There's no way to decenter that. There's no way to kind of move that into some other, well, we'll get to that bit later, but let's do the important stuff first. The important stuff is caring for widows and orphans. Now, look. Religious leaders, right? Whether they're the, the scribes of Judaism, uh, the priests of Catholicism, the ministers of Protestantism have had a spotty history in how they sometimes treated the most vulnerable. Perhaps you have been hurt by the church. I think people get hurt by the church in a variety of ways. Sometimes we come and, and we're, we're redeemed by God and we're filled with forgiveness and the mercy and grace of God has just, we're overwhelmed with joy. We just, we just want to be there, right? We're just, you know, every time the doors open, we're there. We're, we're ready to serve in every way. And let me tell you, we'll take your volunteerism. We'll take it and we'll take it and we'll take it and we'll take it. And if we're not careful, we'll just use you up. And you'll get spent. And you'll get burnt out. And we will have devoured you the way the scribes devoured the widows' houses. And for that, I confess and I apologize. Whether it was at Oasis or whether it was another church, wherever it was in your life, if that was your experience as a representative of the church, let me say, I'm sorry. 
Other people have different struggles, right? So they grow up in the faith, and then they kind of, it's difficult to move from like, you know, teenage faith into young adult faith. Because teenage faith is often so shaped by the, by the faith of our family, right? And so how does that become our own? And you get out there in the big wide world, and there's a lot of people that believe a lot of things, and a lot of people that believe very little of anything, and you, you end up with like an intellectual crisis of faith. And the church perhaps hasn't treated you well. They shamed you for not believing, as though it was somehow your fault. Any of you who do believe, if you think you believe just because you did it, uh, I've got news for you. That's not true. Scripture talks about faith as being a gift of God. And sometimes that works well for us and sometimes it doesn't. But when it doesn't, we don't need the church battering us over it. So, so whether you've had that intellectual struggle with faith and the, and the church has kind of, you felt like the church has kind of turned its back on you or it has, let me say to you, I'm sorry. I apologize. Forgive us. There are other, other reasons why we run into hard times. Like we have tragedies in our lives. Right? Someone gets sick or there's an accident and our world just kind of falls apart. And we don't know what to do. And we've always believed in God before, but we find ourselves in a new situation and the belief just isn't there anymore. And the church hasn't always done the best job with those who struggle, right? As long as things are good for you, come, come, come. But if things aren't so good for you and we don't see you for a month of Sundays, well, why haven't you been in church? Forgive me. Forgive us. On behalf of the church, I want to say, I'm sorry. That's not the way you should have been treated. Someone should have cared for you in other ways, not devoured you. Some of you have experienced some of the worst things that you can experience. So in a Me Too and Time's Up movement, it's a sad thing to say, but the church is not that different than the culture. So whether you suffered sexual abuse outside the church or whether you suffered it inside the church, if the church treated you like an other, like someone who was damaged, like someone who was not of us, I'm sorry. Forgive us. To whom much is given, much is required. And those of us in religious leadership need to be caring for those who are hurt. And if you have found yourself somewhere in there, I want you to know a few things. One, Jesus has no patience for such behavior. The church doesn't belong to any organization or any person. The church belongs to Jesus. It is Jesus' church. I'll have to reach over into Matthew a bit since Mark never actually talks about the church particularly. But in, in Matthew's gospel, 
Peter will say, you are the Christ, and Jesus will say, that's right, and you are the rock, and upon this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell will not be able to withstand it. Not that we'll be this cloistered little group that will be able to withstand the pressure of hell, but that we will be the church triumphant, the church on the move. Not triumphant over people, triumphant over evil. For the sake of people. So we say in our context, everybody's welcome. And we are committed to that. That's not just words we say. We also say that nobody's perfect. That also includes the church. The church is not perfect. And anything's possible. That anything's possible includes both your well-being, kind of being healed and made whole, coming out of the brokenness that you've experienced. But here's, here's a kind of maybe an ironic uh, turn. Your healing will take shape, I believe, as you re-engage the church, the family of God, the body of Christ. And you might say, well, it was the body of Christ that hurt me. How could that possibly work that way? Because it was an aberration of the body of Christ that hurt you. It wasn't Christ who did. Christ came and died for you. Christ will stand with you. Christ will stand for you. Right? Too, too, too many Christians think they have to stand up for Jesus when really they need to stand up with Jesus because Jesus is standing up for the poor and the hurt and the marginalized. If the church has done to you what the temple did to the widow, forgive us. But this is not the end. Our stories are not over. Even if our stories contain these chapters that are, are all so horrible and difficult, the story's not over because Jesus is on the throne, which I think is what the very next story is actually about. This is not the end. So, in the next passage, we're on into 13 now, Mark 13. It says, When Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be? Like, when is the temple going to get torn down? And what will be the sign of all these things about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead, lead many astray. When you hear of wars... And rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is still to come. For the nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places. And there will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pains. Now that's an interesting, interesting turn of a phrase. Like, I thought when there was wars and rumors of wars and nation was against nation and everybody had to hide and watch out because here comes the end. I thought it was because here comes the end. And Jesus is like, when you hear all that stuff, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Are you kidding me? Of course I'm alarmed. 
I feel like our world's falling apart. People who used to go to church with each other now don't even talk to each other. We, we can't. We, we, we long for a diverse kind of community. But it's difficult. It's hard for us to do that. Whether the diversity is race or gender or politics or nationality, we're, we're, we're afraid of the other. This, surely this is the end. Surely something must come. But Jesus is like, don't, don't freak out. This is just the beginning. And then there's this interesting turn. I mean, Jesus quotes or alludes to Daniel twice. He'll, he'll allude to the desecration of the temple out of Daniel 9, which is something that had already taken place, right? That was the temple that got uh, desecrated and it got rededicated, and that's Hanukkah. We mentioned that earlier. That's the Daniel 9 piece. So he refers something in the past to talk about something that he thinks is going to happen again in the future, right? The, the destruction of the temple. And then he quotes Daniel again, but this time he's quoting Daniel 7. And he says this, this is part of the coming or perhaps going of the Son of Man. It's kind of hard to tell. It says this, though, But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out his angels, and he will gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So we've always kind of read that text as a second coming. Like we're getting ready to celebrate after Thanksgiving the season of Advent, that season when we celebrate the birth of Christ, which is always then paired with this expectation that Christ is returning again. And there are plenty of passages of Scripture that will talk about the return of Christ, but I want to suggest to us this morning that this passage might be talking about something different. I'm going to do that for two reasons. One, the verse after this says, all of this will come to pass before this generation will, will die. So if this is a reference to the second coming, somehow that verse got misplaced or something because that generation has long since been dead uh, and the second coming has yet to happen. So that's, that's problematic. The other is this, is that the word for coming in the clouds can also mean going in the clouds because they had this kind of circular view of activity, right? So if you don't have a linear view of activity, coming and going means something very different, right? I'm coming to church. I'm going to church. It's perspective, right? <laughs> this son of man character out of Daniel 7 the one like the Son of Man is this angelic figure who comes to rescue Israel. All these other beasts uh, are, are these nations that were going to devour her. But the one like the Son of Man comes and destroys them. And then the one like the Son of Man comes in the clouds to heaven and sits on the throne with the Ancient of Days. Who knew? Right? With all the monotheism that we anticipated out of Judaism, apparently the divine throne is a love seat, a two-seater. The one, the Ancient of Days, sorry, I don't mean to make light of it. The Ancient of Days and the one like the Son of Man share a throne. So what, if, if that story in Daniel, which obviously Jesus is alluding to, is an ascension story, 
What if this story in Mark's gospel, when he refers to the Son of Man coming in the clouds and the elect then being gathered, is a reference to the ascension of Jesus? Why would it matter if Jesus ascended? It would matter because if Jesus is on the throne, then eventually things will be made right. Widows will be cared for. Orphans will be provided for. The hurt will be made whole. If Jesus is on the throne, eventually his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven, which is what we pray for. Yes? So at, at some point, right, we need to kind of take off our robes and our vests. And our hoods, fancy clothes, maybe even our ties, and we need to get dressed up in a different garb, a garb that might look more like our Lord and Savior. This is how we're to dress. Because if we're going to be with Jesus, we're going to be servants. And look, again, I realize that the irony, irony might be overwhelming to you. How can I, on the one hand, say, hey, I'm sorry that you were hurt and that the church was responsible for that brokenness, or at least part of it. And on the other hand, say, look, the Lord is on the throne. If you come, you will be made whole. It's not that... You have to wait because you were hurt till for your life to get right in order for you to re-engage. If you re-engage now, your life will be made right. Because it's as you serve like the real leader, not the pretend leader, that you will flourish and you'll be what humans were made to be. It's when we mimic the wrong version of leadership that we end up kind of becoming those who abuse I mean, it's a, sad, it's a sad but true thing, right? A lot of folks who have been abused become themselves abusers. But we want to break that cycle. And we break that cycle by putting our trust in the one who dies, not in the one who conquers. We read in the opening call to worship, Psalm 146. I want us to return there for a bit. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Isn't that interesting? Um, the psalmist is like talking to the psalmist. <laughs> Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Sometimes I don't feel like praising God. Sometimes things have broken so bad that there's nothing in me that's, that's there. And I feel like the psalmist has gotten to that kind of rough spot. But the psalmist says, okay, soul, time to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Come on, soul. <laughs> and then it says, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God all my life. Do not put your trust in princes and mortals in whom there is no help. Look, you can't put your trust just in a preacher. And you can't put your trust, God forbid, in a politician. I don't know if you've heard this, but there's an election this week. <laughs> you might not have known that, if by chance you've been in a coma. 
Don't put your trust there. When their breath departs, they're being, being, you know, people who we put our trust in. When their breath departs, they return to the earth. On the very day, their plans perish. Happy are those whose help is in the God of Jacob. Forgive us and come back and trust us. To be in a family is to realize that families aren't perfect, right? It's the middle statement of our, right? Everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, right? To be in a family is to realize that, no, that, that families aren't perfect, but you don't forsake the family, you, you re-engage the family. And if your biological family has forsaken you, know that this is the family of God. Happy are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Look, if your faith has thinned or is frayed or is disappearing, it's okay because God has faith in you. And God's faith in you will one day restore your faith. Put your trust in God. As, as Brendan Manning would call it, a ruthless trust. That we do serve the God of heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Alan? The, the Lord sets prisoners free, Ted? And opens up the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He upholds the orphans and the widow. But the way of the wicked brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.